All wars are transformative events. Lives are lost, territory lines are redrawn, and millions of dollars are spent and made. For the winner, it could mean emerging as a world leader. For the loser, total devastation. But few wars were as transformative as the First World War. World War I was the last gasp of the old monarchies. In the crucible of battle, many of them would be burned away, their great ambitions tossed onto the ash heap of history. For Europe, the nature of government was changing. The notion of an ancient and noble family granted a divine right to rule felt archaic in the age of machines. And while power would continue to be concentrated in the hands of a single individual, rarely would that be a king or queen again. Some of these new leaders attempted to turn their tiny nation into a global power, while others tried to hold on to the prestige of dwindling empires. Regardless of motivation, these men were a dying breed in a world moving toward progress. The results were the deaths of millions of people and a total reshaping of the world as we know it. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring the reigns of despot monarchs who ruled just before or during World War I. We'll explore King Leopold II of Belgium, Emperor Franz Josef of Austria-Hungary, and the three pashas of the Ottoman Empire. Today, we begin with Leopold II, the King of the Belgians. We'll dive into Leopold's difficult family life, his decades-long quest for a Belgian colony, and how he tricked the world's great powers into giving him exactly what he wanted. Next week, we'll explore the horrific regime Leopold ruled over in the Congo and how the king's crimes were finally exposed to the world. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? 
Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In November 1813, William I, the Prince of Orange, landed on a beach in the Netherlands where the people proclaimed, The old days are returning. By the old days, they meant that there would be a return to self-determination and monarchy. For the last two decades, the French had occupied the Low Countries, the region that makes up present-day Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. But when Napoleon was defeated in the Netherlands in 1813, the French army retreated back to their home country, leaving control of the Low Countries wide open. In 1815, William I was made sovereign of the newly formed United Kingdom of the Netherlands. Of course, the newly unified country meant forcing different types of people to suddenly live under a single banner. Naturally, this caused tensions, especially along religious lines. The North was predominantly Protestant, like King William, while the South was mostly Catholic. Slowly but surely, those in the South began forming their own identity. They called themselves Belgians from the ancient Roman province of Belgica and the Belgae tribes who had fought against Julius Caesar. Tensions eventually came to a head in 1830 during an opera, of all things. On August 25th, Danielle Aubert's La Mouette de Portici premiered at the Monet Theatre in Brussels. The story is about a 17th-century revolt against Spain. The performance inspired a riot in the theater, which inspired rioting in the streets, which quickly spread throughout the southern towns. Within weeks, Belgians declared their independence. The sudden independence of Belgium made other European countries wary. Many feared that the new country would come under French influence and eventually French control. Others saw it as an opportunity to create an additional buffer state between France and other European powers. Ultimately, everyone's fears were put to ease when the newly formed National Congress of Belgium decided that their government would be a popular constitutional monarchy, and their first king would be Leopold Georg Christian Friedrich, the German prince of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Leopold was a compromise on all levels. He was a German Protestant with ties to the British monarchy, but he was also eligible to marry a Catholic French princess. Essentially, he was the least offensive candidate at home and abroad, and thus he was elected to become King Leopold I. Because the new government was a constitutional monarchy, the king's powers were limited. For example, his choice of ministers had to be approved by Parliament, and all his decisions had to be countersigned by at least one minister. However, the king was commander-in-chief of the Belgian military, could hold up bills indefinitely by simply not signing them, and could fire ministers at will. So despite the constitutional limits, King Leopold firmly believed he still had the power to act like a king. Of course, one of the most classic ways to act like a king was to produce a male heir. And on April 9, 1835, Leopold Louis-Philippe Marie Victor was born. Unfortunately, the young Leopold wasn't exactly what the family had hoped for in an heir. 
As a child, the young Leopold was lazy and unsociable. His only interests were geography and a bizarre obsession with trade deals. The young Leopold was the black sheep of the family, and his relationship with his father was tense and cold. In fact, young Leopold had to apply for an audience if he wanted to see his dad, like a common courtier. And when his father had something to say to his son, he had the message delivered via his secretary. Despite the lack of love from his father, Leopold grew into a capable but harsh young royal. And although he didn't have standard kingly hobbies, like hunting, he did develop an obsession with empowering the young Belgian state. To Leopold, Belgium was a status symbol. The beauty, grandeur, and power of the kingdom reflected the prestige of the king. Making Belgium magnificent was never about improving the lives of the people, but rather about enhancing his own eminence. There was nothing unusual about this. It was the natural way for kings to act. What was unique about Leopold was the shocking lengths he would go to to achieve this goal. One of the earliest signs of the future king's ruthlessness came with his marriage to Marie Henrietta, a cousin of the Austrian emperor Franz Josef. Their marriage was a disaster from the start. Marie Henrietta was a fun, charming, and spirited young woman. She laughed freely at court functions, taught card games to the royal family, and loved to go riding. For some reason, Leopold hated fun. He was a stern man with lofty ambitions, and having a good time wasn't one of them. So he was determined to crush his wife's spirit. Not long after their honeymoon, 18-year-old Leopold began an affair with a famed actress, while simultaneously starting a rumor that Marie Henrietta was in love with her coachman. The abuse came so quickly that just a month after getting married, Marie Henrietta wrote a friend, If God hears my prayers, I shall not go on living much longer. The marriage would never be warm. But because of societal pressure, Marie Henrietta remained loyal to her husband, even though Leopold was anything but faithful. For Leopold, marriage was just a way to produce heirs, of which he and Marie had four. Instead of focusing on his family, Leopold put his energy toward his true desire, finding a colony for Belgium. Throughout his early 20s, Leopold traveled the world. He went to Egypt, the Middle East, the Balkans, North Africa, and East Asia. He was looking for land to seize by any means necessary. Leopold believed it was time for Belgium to expand abroad and take its place in the sun, despite being such a young nation. He said that he wanted the Belgians to show the world that they are also an imperial people capable of dominating and teaching others. Leopold was living in the age of empires. A monarch's status was intimately connected to the breadth of his colonies. At the same time, social Darwinism was coming into vogue. The theory was that the concept of survival of the fittest also applied to nations and races. Strong countries and races would multiply. The weak would become extinct. In this way, it would function as a philosophical rationalization to justify the imperial, colonialist, and racist endeavors of the period. Leopold didn't think he had a nation of born heroes on his hands. 
He often described the Belgians as small people, small country. Once, he complained to an assistant, Belgium doesn't exploit the world. It's a taste we have got to make her learn. So in order to give his people a taste for domination, Prince Leopold hoped to feed them colonialism. In South America, he tried to buy an island off the coast of Argentina. In Egypt, he inquired about purchasing lakes in the Nile River Delta. He made attempts at securing land in Fiji, Taiwan, and the Philippines. Every attempt was shot down. But the young prince didn't lose his resolve. If he couldn't accomplish his dream now, perhaps he could once he was king. The time came at the end of 1865. On December 10th, King Leopold I died. One week later, 30-year-old Leopold II was crowned as King of Belgium. At his coronation, Leopold said, During the first 25 years, Belgium has seen the accomplishment of things which, in a country the extent of ours, are seldom realized by one generation. But the edifice, whose foundations were laid by Congress, can and will raise itself higher still. The message was clear. Under his reign, Belgium would expand by any means necessary. Although he was now the king, Leopold refused to warm up to anyone. He worked his ministers tirelessly, keeping them on edge with his unpredictable behavior. He might be charming one moment and arrogant and sarcastic the next. The only person the king seemed to have any genuine affection for was his son, also named Leopold. It's not unexpected that a king would develop a strong attachment to his son, since he represents the continuation of the dynasty. However, it's also possible that Leopold refused to give his son the same non-relationship he had with his father. Leopold doted on the little prince, who loved keeping a little garden and playing with his pony, which was named Kiss Me Quick. According to historian Theo Aronson, Leopold concentrated what little affection he had to give on this son and heir, leaving his wife and daughters all but disregarded. Unfortunately, in January 1869, the prince died after a months-long battle with pneumonia. Leopold was devastated. As the prince's body was about to be lowered into the ground, Leopold fell to his knees and broke down weeping. It was as much emotion as anyone had ever seen from him, and more than would ever be seen again. Leopold never recovered from his son's death. Over 30 years later, after arranging a successful deal, an accomplice remarked, The king is very lucky. Leopold responded, Lucky? I have lost my son. Once the boy was gone, so too was the last of the king's humanity. What was left was now a monster. A monster with the wealth and power of a king. Coming up, Leopold finds his colony and schemes to keep it. The worst serial killer. The creepiest cult. The most outrageous con. If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, 
Now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. At the beginning of 1869, Leopold II lost his nine-year-old son to pneumonia. Without his beloved son to raise, Leopold turned his energies toward raising Belgium. Essential to that goal was beautifying the capital in Brussels. He wanted the city to be the heart of an empire. It needed galleries and amphitheaters and racetracks. So he built and built and built. Of course, Leopold was also able to focus on expansion. First, he tried to grab Luxembourg, which he considered to be a natural part of Belgium's borders. He came up with a scheme to purchase the small duchy from the Netherlands. But this, like Leopold's previous colonial plans, fell flat. Leopold was frustrated by the failure to nab Luxembourg, often repeating that only fear had prevented Belgium from expanding. The lesson was not lost on him. To become strong, the king had to be fearless. Unable to grab land in Europe, South America, or East Asia, Leopold decided to turn his attention to Africa. At the time, there was far less competition from other European powers, and the vast majority of the continent was still ruled by Africans. Of course, Leopold was sly enough to understand that he had to mask his lust for conquest in a veneer of respectability. Since its formation, Belgium had been a small country sandwiched between France and Germany. If Leopold made too naked a power grab, The reaction from Belgium's more powerful neighbors could prove fatal. So, Leopold decided to cloak his ambitions in the guise of humanitarianism. According to historian Adam Hochschild, curbing the slave trade, moral uplift, and the advancement of science were the aims he would talk about, not profits. Leopold put his plans into motion in 1876. He traveled around Great Britain meeting explorers, geographers, soldiers, and the Baroness Angela Burdett Coutts, a patron of missionaries. Crucially, he also met British explorer Vernet Lovett Cameron, the first European to cross Africa from east to west. Cameron described his exploration of the middle of the continent to the king in vivid detail. Seized with a greedy excitement, Leopold decided that the area Cameron described, an undefined space around the Congo River, might well be the colony he dreamed of. The Congo River Basin was first visited by Europeans in the 15th century when Portuguese explorer Diogo Cao sailed into the mouth of the river in 1482. Throughout the early 1480s, Cao traveled around the area and eventually arrived at the Kingdom of Congo. He was astonished by how complex and thriving the kingdom was. He was especially impressed by Nzinga Aunku, the King of Congo, also called the Mani Congo. 
Much like his European counterparts, the Mani Congo sat atop a magnificent throne, collected taxes, commanded troops, and carried a symbol of authority. In his case, a zebra tail whip. He also appointed governors for his provinces, which were supported by an intricate civil service. Of course, just because the Portuguese were impressed by the African kingdom didn't mean they weren't going to exploit them. The Europeans' bottomless hunger for enslaving the kingdom's inhabitants was unprecedented and unfathomably destructive, threatening to destabilize the entire region. Priests, masons, and teachers who had initially come from Lisbon to share knowledge and Christianity all became slavers. Portuguese priests even sold their students and converts into slavery. But despite holding control of the slave trade in the area, the Portuguese only controlled the coasts. For 300 years, they never bothered to explore the interior of the continent. Thus, when King Leopold II convened his geographical conference in September 1876, the interior of Central Africa remained a mystery. He realized it was an opportunity, one he intended to exploit to the fullest. Around 40 people attended the conference. Among them were famed explorers, geographers, philanthropists, humanitarians, missionaries, businessmen, and admirals. Speaking at the conference, Leopold remarked on Belgium's interest in Africa. To open to civilization the only part of our globe which it has not yet penetrated, to pierce the darkness which hangs over entire peoples is, I dare say, a crusade worthy of this century of progress. Leopold also assured those listening that he had no other ambitions but to humbly serve the new colony. New hospitals and research stations would be founded, staffed by unarmed European scientists and aid workers. Artisans would teach useful skills to the locals. Laboratories would study the local plants and animals. All of this would be done under the guise of combating the slave trade. The guests responded with enthusiasm and immediately set upon creating the African International Association, or AIA, and electing Leopold as its chairman. The AIA would be a private, charitable organization that gave Leopold the veneer of goodwill he needed. An observer at the time deemed Leopold's plans the greatest humanitarian work of this time. But in fact, what Leopold was planning was nothing short of conquest. Leopold put his plans into motion the next year, in August 1877. The catalyst was the reappearance of the British-born explorer Henry Morton Stanley. Stanley had just emerged half-dead at the mouth of the Congo River after a roundabout journey of two and a half years and 7,000 miles. Like Bernay Lovett Cameron, Stanley had crossed Africa from east to west. Uniquely, however, he had traveled along the Congo River, charting its course. Stanley's trek was grueling. Of course, it was probably even harder on his porters, whom Stanley was in the habit of having whipped for not moving fast enough. Leopold had been following Stanley's journey for months, scanning the newspaper daily for updates. Once Stanley completed his trek, Leopold immediately sent him a telegram of congratulations. 
In Stanley, the king saw the key to achieving his dream of a colony in Africa. The vast expanse of land Stanley had just explored, until then, a blank space on the map was ripe for the picking. In January 1878, Stanley stopped off in the French city of Marseille on his journey back to England. While there, the explorer found two of Leopold's agents waiting for him. They asked if Stanley would be interested in joining the AIA. Stanley initially declined, wanting his native Great Britain to enjoy the fruits of his success. But after five months of wooing, he agreed to visit Belgium and sit down for a meeting with the king. Leopold played him like a fiddle. Historian Adam Hochschild notes that Leopold had taken the measure of Stanley's ambition, of his immense capacity for hard work, of his craving for constant flattery, and of his need for a sponsor. The king was able to provide for all of the above. He offered Stanley a contract that ran for five years. His main job would be to build a series of what he thought were trading and research stations along a thousand-mile stretch of the Congo River. Once the contract was complete, Stanley was allowed to write a book about the experience, but Leopold could edit it and make cuts in case anything happened that the king didn't want the world to know about. Stanley would work for the Committee for Studies of the Upper Congo, which had been recently founded as a subsidiary of the AIA. Officially, the committee had Dutch, British, and Belgian businessmen as its stockholders. Unofficially, these men were mere proxies for Leopold, while the committee's president was another of the king's henchmen. Stanley was completely ignorant of what the king really intended. The explorer had no idea that, as historian Theo Aronson put it, beneath the velvet glove of the AIA was the iron hand of territorial ambition. With Stanley as his man on the ground, Leopold would slither into the heart of Africa and, like a ravenous python, squeeze the life out of a land around the size of Western Europe. Coming up, Leopold cons half the world in order to steal an empire. Now, back to the story. By 1878, Leopold II, the 43-year-old King of Belgium, had finally set his eye on a colony, the Congo River Basin in Central Africa. And to help him carve out his empire, Leopold hired famed British explorer Henry Morton Stanley. In February 1879, Stanley returned to Africa to begin constructing a line of stations along the Congo River. Depending on the audience, Leopold would offer different explanations as to what exactly Stanley was building. Sometimes they were hospitals or research labs or forts to fight against the slave trade. Regardless, the king insisted that his intent was always philanthropy. But cutting roads through the jungle was grueling, deadly work. In the first year, six Europeans and 22 Africans died during the construction. It wasn't easy for Stanley either. During one particularly nasty bout of malaria, his weight dropped to 100 pounds, and he was too weak to speak. 
At another point, he became so ill that he had to return to Europe to convalesce. When doctors told Stanley that if he returned to the Congo, he would probably die, Leopold demanded that he return anyway. Stanley obeyed. But of course, the African laborers had it the worst. Stanley's preferred method of motivation was with a whip and chains. He earned the nickname Breaker of Stones. After two years of grueling labor, Stanley established an important station at the head of the Congo Rapids, which was named Leopoldville. It sat at the base of Leopold Hill. Shortly after, there would be a Lake Leopold II and then a Leopold River. While Stanley was slowly building outposts for Leopold, he realized that he wasn't alone. In November 1880, a French explorer named Count Pierre Sauvignon de Brazza suddenly appeared on the north shore of the Congo River. The French, it seemed, were sniffing after colonies of their own. Technically, Belgium didn't own the territory they were building on. Leopold's whole ploy was to claim the land without actually claiming it, using the AIA as a front organization. But in order to block the French from swiping the Congo out from under him, Leopold would need to acquire sovereign rights over it. And for that, he had to get the local African chiefs to sign treaties. Stanley was put in charge of collecting the signatures. Most of the chiefs had no clue what they were being asked to sign, but were happy to do so in exchange for bottles of gin and bolts of cloth. Most likely assumed they were signing treaties of friendship not legal documents handing over their land to the Belgian king. According to historian Theo Aronson, by the end of 1883, over 300 chiefs had signed away their independence and placed themselves under the dubious protection of the Belgians. To consolidate his control over the territory he claimed, Leopold dissolved the Committee for Studies of the Upper Congo on the pretext of bankruptcy. The AIA itself was by now extinct. In its place, Leopold started a new company, the International Association of the Congo, known by its French acronym as AIC. Since AIC was so close to AIA, everyone assumed it was the same project. Leopold threw more mud into the water by using the same flag for the AIC as he did for the AIA a gold star on a blue background. Leopold may have outmaneuvered the French, but he wasn't done fighting off competition from other European powers. The Portuguese had been the first Europeans to visit the Congo River, and they felt it belonged to them. They claimed the mouth of the river, and Britain supported Portugal's claim. To prevent the Portuguese from seizing the mouth of the river and cutting off his access to the sea, Leopold played his rivals against each other. According to Aronson, rather than allow a competing empire to control the Congo Basin, he wrote, quote, The European powers would willingly support some weak, uncommitted regime, and this was exactly how Leopold planned to present his AIC. By using his very weakness as strength, he set about defying the world. In other words, since Leopold claimed that the AIC wasn't a threat to any of Europe's empires, they could all agree to let the organization control the interior territory. 
In order to pull off the con, Leopold had to have the AIC internationally recognized so that his planned Federation of Free Negro Republics, as he called it, would be granted official statehood. And the first place he turned to was the United States. He knew he could appeal to two things the Yanks loved most, charity and capitalism. Leopold convinced President Chester A. Arthur that the Free Republics were both a great humanitarian project and an opportunity for commercial investment. He assured the president that Americans would be able to buy land in the Congo and that American commodities there would be duty-free. Arthur was enthused and completely duped. Writing to Congress, the president reported that the objects of the AIC are philanthropic. It does not aim at permanent political control, but seeks the neutrality of the valley. In April 1884, the United States became the first nation to officially recognize Leopold's claim to the Congo. They assumed they were giving recognition to a collection of free states, like an African version of the USA. With the U.S. sufficiently fooled, Leopold buttered up France. Though the French felt they had nothing to fear from Belgium itself, they assumed that sooner or later Leopold's colonizing enterprise would go bankrupt. When that happened, he might sell the land to Great Britain, which was unacceptable. Leopold promised France that if he was ever disposed of his custody of the Congo, France would get the right of first refusal. The French happily agreed. France granted full recognition of Leopold's claim. After that, the last moves of the game virtually played themselves. Britain and Germany realized that they had to keep the AIC in charge, because if the AIC collapsed, then the Congo would go to France. So, like the U.S., Germany agreed to accept Leopold's claim in exchange for guarantees of freedom of trade. Of course, they were unaware that Leopold's treaties with the African chiefs granted him trade monopolies. After Germany recognized Leopold's claim, Britain agreed to withdraw its support of Portugal, which was then forced to retreat from the Congo. The AIC, and thus Leopold, was formally recognized as the controller of the new Congo state. Not everyone was blind to the scheme Leopold had just pulled off. German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, one of the shrewdest diplomats to ever play the game, publicly praised Leopold as the founder of a work which will confer the most important benefits on mankind. In the margins of a document written by Leopold, however, the Iron Chancellor scribbled, Fraud. Fraud or not, Leopold got what he wanted. In May 1885, the 50-year-old king abandoned the pretense of the AIC and named his privately controlled colony the Independent State of the Congo, or Congo Free State. Now that he had the Congo in his grasp, Leopold could drop the mask. At first, he considered naming himself Emperor of the Congo, but settled on the slightly more modest King of the Congo. But there was still one hurdle to cross, the Belgian Parliament. The Parliament had never wanted a colony in the first place. 
they expressed concern that they might end up saddled with the responsibility for the Congo, or that Leopold's attention might be torn between the Belgian and Congolese parliaments. Leopold reassured them that there would be no democracy in the Congo. He would rule as an absolute king. He had complete and total authority. Satisfied that the Congo wouldn't be their responsibility, or feeling that there was no point in arguing any further, the Belgian government agreed to make Leopold the King of the Congo. According to Theo Aronson, almost overnight, little Belgium's constitutional monarch had emerged as the absolute sovereign of a country the size of Western Europe. And with the announcement, 50-year-old King Leopold II had finally achieved his lifelong dream of acquiring a colony. The only question that remained was what he actually planned to do with it. Few could have anticipated that Leopold II would create one of the most brutal and horrifying regimes in human history. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore how Leopold II built a brutal, merciless regime in the Congo, how his crimes were finally exposed, and what happened to him as a result. Among the many sources we used, we found The Coburgs of Belgium by Theo Aronson and King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner.